For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. For newcomers, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher uh, here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. So welcome, everyone. Um, I'm very, very happy to have with us this morning as our guest speaker, Ayo Yatunde. Uh, Ayo is author, co-author of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can teach us about race, resilience, transformation, and freedom. Ayo is also co-author of Midwifing, a womanist approach to pastoral counseling, investigating the fractured self, slavery, violence, and the black woman. So Ayo is a wonderful speaker. I've heard her a couple of times before. Um, She's also a, a college professor and is... Uh, connected with the uh, Upaya uh, Sangha and also with Clouds and Water in Minnesota. So thank you very much, Ayo, for coming to speak with us uh, this morning. Thank you, Tigan. Thank you very much uh, for this invitation. And I am going to first orient myself a little bit just to see who is present I'm recognizing now it's it's now time for me to buy a, <laughs> a computer with a bigger screen <laughs> so that I can actually see people. But uh, just get, bear with me for a moment. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I'm glad to see you all and glad to be with you this morning. So I think uh, I will set my timer. How much time do we have for a conversation, Tigan? Well, we could. It's flexible, and I want to give you as much time as you and other and uh, our, our discussion people want. So, um, and and the time has changed, hasn't it? <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, you can you could talk till eleven or eleven fifteen or longer, and then we should have uh, we can have discussion till. I don't know, 1130, 1145. Uh, but again, if uh, I, I won't do that, <laughs> <laughs> I thank you. I won't go that long because I'm really, I'm really more interested in having conversation. Yeah. Well, that includes uh, conversation. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. So uh, let's see. 
I want to begin by saying, oh, just an update. I didn't update Tigan with my with my most recent changes. So I'm no longer teaching at a seminary. So I want to make that known. That doesn't mean I won't in the future, but I'm not doing that now. I'm the co-editor of Black and Buddhist uh, with Cheryl Giles. And there are several other contributors to that book. And then also, I didn't co-author Midwifing. I wrote the foreword. So I just don't want to get credit for, <laughs> for things that I didn't do. Um, and that's the reason for my uh, corrections there. But thank you for the uh, invitation and the introduction. And I want to say something about, just a little bit about myself to orient you, those of you who don't know me, to who I am. I consider myself to be an interfaith Buddhist practitioner. That means I grew up in the United Methodist Church and have attended other types of churches along the way. I, um, I feel like my foundation, my spiritual and religious foundation is in Christian ethics. Um, and I encountered Buddhism about 20 years ago. And apparently it just struck me as, as right. And so along the way, I've incorporated Buddhist teachings from a variety of traditions, starting with the Plum Village tradition, and insight traditions, and working in Zen Hospice uh, Project, got a little Shambhala sprinkled in, and I sit with two communities in the Twin Cities, even though I live in Chicago now. Uh, one is Common Ground Meditation Center, which is an insight meditation community, where I received the uh, training as a community Dharma leader, and I'm also a Zen student sitting with the Clouds and Water Zen Center in St. Paul. So today I want to uh, mostly just, I really, okay, can I be honest? Yes, of course I can be honest. I want us to have a conversation uh, uh, from the perspective of an interracial, even though I don't know how integrated uh, ancient dragon is, but to have an interracial conversation about uh, how we need to respond for the world we say that we want to live in uh, and what uh, our responsibilities are to create that world. So you may see behind me a statue of Kuan Yin. So Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, uh, and called uh, canon and, and by many names in different traditions. I want to bring Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin into this conversation to say that uh, it was only after uh, my two years at Upaya Zen Center's chaplaincy program where I taught and where I also immersed myself in this, in um, let's say, spiritual formation, that I began uh, really incorporating the teachings around Avalokiteshvara and Kuan Yin. And, you know, I chanted it in, in various communities, but really uh, just recalling the teachings of listening to the cries of the world is, some, is like a mantra for me now. And I, I think it helped me get through the first months of the pandemic when I was really sitting with a lot of anger, just anger over, well, anger and grief. Anger, okay, and fear. Fear over what is this virus and what is it doing to us? Grief over 
uh, the loss of life and anger over what I felt was the weaponizing of a pandemic against uh, political opponents and against people of color. Um, And some might say even against the rest of the world because our response was was and still largely remains um, particular only to our country. And this is a worldwide pandemic. So we need to have a, a worldwide response to eradicate it. So sitting with fear, grief, and anger, oh, peppered with rage throughout the day for six months is not my MO. And I recognized that it was nothing, there was nothing in my regular practice I could do to shift it. I would go to bed angry, wake up angry, very impatient, short with my loved ones. And I remembered the teachings of Avalokiteshvara, listening to the cries of the world. So I said, okay, well, there's a lot of crying taking place right now within myself, my household, my neighborhood, and throughout the country and the world, there's a lot of crying. Some I can hear, some I cannot hear. Most I cannot hear, but only can imagine. And so I, I do believe that orienting myself towards the Bodhisattva vows has been beneficial for me and hopefully those around me. I said, well, I will continue to listen. I will continue to listen to the cries of the world with this anger, with this rage, with this grief, with this fear, with all of it. I will continue to listen. Also, I'm a chaplain and a pastoral counselor, so that's part of my work. A large part of my work is just listening, listening to my clients. But what does it mean? What did it mean for me to listen to the cries of the world and to continue trying to do that? even when there's a lot more hope now because we have vaccines, people are getting vaccinated and we have uh, messages from top government that things are going to get better soon. So it's a different cultural, I say it's a cultural shift from where we were not long ago, but we still are in a pandemic and hundreds of millions of people have been infected I think tens of millions have died. I don't know the actual number. We're still in a dangerous time. So I'm sitting, excuse me, six months or so into the pandemic. And uh, then George Floyd is tortured and murdered in Minneapolis uh, in what we call the Twin Cities, where I was living at the time. And I think anybody who's been paying attention to how we're living, you know, 2020, I don't know what that what that year is going to go down in history as one of the worst years of our lives, I guess. The aftermath of and the reaction in the aftermath of that torture and murder rippled throughout the world. 
some in predictable ways, <clears throat> excuse me, some in unpredictable ways, but also met with uh, force in the, in, the, in the way of deploying National Guard's people throughout the country. Also in the way of persistent uh, resistance exemplified by activists in Portland. Where are we now? I'm not really sure exactly where we are. Because then, you know, as people start talking about, oh, 2020, what a horrible year. Let's get that behind us and let's enter into 2021 stronger than January 6th occurred. The attack on the Capitol, the deadly attack on the Capitol. Then another impeachment trial and another acquittal. Okay. So in the midst of all this, before, before the more, more recent events, as I was sitting with listening to the cries of the world, I finally got up the courage to go to the George Floyd Memorial. And when I went, I just sat there. I observed people coming and going in silence, largely in silence. I wept. I took in the many manifestations of art and art made out of uh, destroyed pieces of, of, of buildings. And I came out of that observation somewhat renewed, somewhat renewed. But in addition to that, I also took in the news reports of the many of the many protests throughout the world uh, across traditions, across races, across all of our, seemingly all of our lines of difference as a show of solidarity worldwide against police brutality because it is a worldwide phenomenon. So as I was sitting and coming back into my sense of hope, hopefulness, I then reached out to some BIPOC folks, uh, Buddhist practitioners, Dharma practitioners, mindfulness practitioners in the Twin Cities and said, hey, let's, you know, this is the impact that this, all of this has had on me. I don't know what it's had on you, but let's get together and see what we can do together. Five months of, of meeting resulted in the idea of, uh, of witnessing to the George Floyd trial. Not that George Floyd is on trial, but we use his name as a way of saying, let's, let's not forget what happened to him. And of course, countless other unarmed Black people at the hands of police officers. A trial is coming up that uh, is of uh, international significance. And it's a high stakes trial. And as Buddhist practitioners, those of us who say we are trying to live the Bodhisattva life, are we not going to watch this trial? 
are we going to just keep living like we live? The same kind of samsaric, uh, habituated patterns of Black people being deemed as dangerous and life-threatening, needing to be punished on the street, no due process. Police not likely to go to trial, but if they do, will probably be acquitted using the same old playbooks that blames the victim rather than the perpetrator. Trial takes place, acquittal, shock, violence, and then just playing that over and over again. Or perhaps as Buddhist practitioners on the Bodhisattva path, we can invite ourselves, excuse me, and others to actually pay attention to this trial. So we decided we want to invite you all to pay attention to this trial. Uh, We're calling ourselves at the moment the Order of Freedom. And the Order of Freedom is creating the project called the Buddhist Justice Reporter, the George Floyd Trials, as a way of providing some coverage specifically for Buddhist practitioners, some analysis as in legal analysis, because many of us don't understand how the legal system works to uphold the system as it is, and also with some Buddhist analysis. The lawyers we intend to invite into conversation also happen to be Buddhist practitioners. So what is it like to integrate your your Buddhist practices as you practice law? We're also really, uh, I can say, really concerned about the lack of constitutional literacy in this country. I think it's, I personally think it's important to know your rights and to know the rights of others so that we can be more equipped, better equipped to protect them or at least advocate for them. So, because I would love us to have conversation, I'm going to begin to bring my comments to a close and say that I I understand that um, sometimes there's a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance to uh, Black people in the United States and elsewhere, but in the United States, seeking uh, self-determination. There's been a lot of resistance historically to that. I've also come to understand that sometimes there are white Buddhist practitioners who resist Black self-determination. And if you have any questions or concerns or thoughts about that, I hope that we can talk about it. Have, you know, what they say, brave conversations, brave space, courageous space. So if you're willing, I'm willing, we can talk about anything. We can talk about, yeah, we can talk about anything. So I'll, I'll leave my comments here and just say, even if you don't want to talk about anything, uh, thank you for the opportunity to connect. I think that's really important for us to do.
across our differences, whether we leave our meetings thinking the very thing we thought before entering the meeting, at least we connected, which is really important. Uh, eventually, probably, hopefully within the next couple of days, if you want to know more about our project, you can go to BuddhistJustice.org and learn more. Last thing. This is really important. I'm sorry. Two, three things I want to say about Buddhist Justice Reporter, because you just never know where these ideas will go, whether will people, uh, whether people will um, um, reject them or support them. As we began sharing this idea about Buddhist Justice Reporter, the George Floyd trials, we have received support from Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis. They are our fiscal sponsor. We've received support from um, Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. They have offered all of their, all of their platforms um, for helping us uh, do this project and do it well. And the Katali Foundation for funding. Uh, so thank you all. Uh, thank you so much, Ayo. And yes, let's have a have open open discussion. Um, a couple things to say, just procedurally. First of all, um, if you w- would like to make a comment, ask a question, respond in any way, you can raise your hand visually if you're you appear on the screen. For people who um, are not uh, on the screen, um, you can go to the participant box at the bottom and raise your hand um, uh, where there's a raise hand option at the bottom right. Um, and David Ray, would you please help me spot people who have, uh, who have uh, comments or questions? And I want to say just to start off that um, all of us, all of us in this country are part of the legacy of slavery and racism. We are all impacted by this. Whether we are aware of it or not, it's it's part of our cultural self. Um, And um, so whether we think we are white, whatever whiteness means, or whatever other so-called race we are, we have to recognize what has what is happening to black people and now to Asian people as well. Um, and so this is part of the basic Buddhist project. Uh, Dogen and Genja Koan says to study the way is to study the self. So part of our deconstructing, a big part of our deconstructing the self is not just our personal psychology and habits and grasping and aggression and all of that, but also the way we're conditioned by this uh, racist culture to um, see who we are. So anyway, this is a a fundamental Buddhist project to be aware of all of this. And and so uh, let's have some discussion. And again, thank you so much, Ayo, for being here, for everything you offer. So um, I see David Weiner's hand is up. So, uh, David, you can start, please. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ayo, for 
for your talk. I just want to make sure because I want to follow on a website. Uh, it's BuddhistJustice.org. Yes. And there's no slash one or anything. I, I, I thought you said one after that. So I just want to make sure. I didn't mean to. Just www.BuddhistJustice.org. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So uh, other comments, questions, responses, um, uh, any anything we 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 need to talk about this and and just for ancient dragon people and anybody you know every everybody's welcome to ancient dragon zoom we have a friday morning uh discussion group after friday morning sazen uh, uh starts with starts with readings from ibram x kendi's how to be an anti-racist uh, so uh we have been uh some of us anyway talking about this and uh, so um, comments, questions, responses, reflections, please feel free. So, Bo, first of all. Thank you again for your talk, Io. Um, you. you mentioned... Um, resistance and you know I, I feel resistance you know um engaging these topics occasionally uh engaging race thinking about paying close attention to uh the george floyd trial I, I feel resistance and i'm wondering about you know how to keep your heart open your mind open um Obviously, that's a huge practice of Avalokiteshvara, like hearing the cries of the world, and they're, you know, <laughs> never-ending in a way. So how do you keep, what are, are there practices? How do you keep that heart open on a day-to-day -day basis um, so that you can continue to pay attention? Thank you. Thank you, Bo. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions. So if you would keep your mic on. <laughs> of course. Okay. So can we get real specific? Sure. Okay. Would you mind telling us more about your resistance to the topic that I'm bringing up? Yeah. Um, I think some of my resistance is, you know, I, I, I try, I attempt, you know, I try to pay attention to what's going on. Um, but I have work, I have family. So some of my resistance is a sense of time. It's like, do I have more? And <laughs> at some level, I recognize the absurdity of that too, because I do consider this is some of the most important stuff, you know, work we can do with our lives is resisting racism and, but still, can I can I fit in a way another more into my attention? So it's almost like I have this idea of attention or or time as a specific limited container, which maybe it is. But so some of that that explains some of that resistance. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. But yeah, that, that, that's a starting point. Okay, thank you. Well, the only thing yeah. that I can say about that is that, yeah, I mean, we're human beings, right? As human beings, we have certain needs 
in order to be healthy. Uh, rest is one of them. Uh, food, obviously shelter, uh, and a means for, for living in this country. And so we, and we also have obligations. Sometimes so many, it feels overwhelming. So we have to prioritize. And so um, when, I, when I was talking about resistance within uh, white Buddhist communities or white-bodied Buddhist practitioners, I wasn't talking about you know, the choices that we have to make in any given day when we're prioritizing what we need to attend to. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the resistance to, um, to knowing more about it because it's not considered important um, or, uh, or, or worse, um, black people should be treated this way. Or maybe, I don't know if this is worse, but um, in order to maintain society as it is, certain people have to be sacrificed in order for me to have the life that I want. So I'm not paying attention to that. I have an aversion. I have an aversion to needing to know any more about that than I already do. Because then I might be implicated in it. I might have to respond to it. Or actually, I'm working for, in the interest of having more of that take place. So why would I, why would I look at that? So that's the kind of resistance I'm talking about, as well as the resistance to hearing um, how this situation uh, causes suffering in people. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this has been a big complaint for a lot of people of color in sanghas. They want to talk about these things, mm-hmm. and they and they experience. We experience the resistance within the sangha to having any time. Uh, devoted to that conversation and to that person. That's what I'm talking about, Bo. I understand. Thank you. Uh, and and I, I don't want to take too much time, but I recognize, you know, some, some of my own aversion and what you just described, you know, it's around police brutality specifically. There's an aversion I recognize in myself to go in very deeply into that out of some fear of, um, well, what's the solution to it? And I, I suspect that the solution is very radical. You know, that is radical, that, that some root needs to be addressed here. Um, and if that's, you know, defunding the police, I'm certainly open to that idea. And, and the aversion comes from that is going to be a lot of energy and work. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, just to say, I recognize that, oh, and that's a major commitment. That's 100%. Um, and it's going to take a mass of people to do that. Am I willing as an individual to dive into that kind of work? So that's a question that, for me at least, brings up some aversion, you know, because any kind of activism like that takes sacrifice at some level or not. And so I guess as an individual, I have to answer whether I'm willing to make the sacrifices entailed in that. So just to say my aversion isn't, you know, I suppose only about time, but it's about answering those pretty deep questions. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You, if you want, I see, I see you going for the button to mute yourself <laughs> before you do that. No, um, I just want to, I just want to say that there's the possibility that getting to get because I've experienced this and I've heard it from other people too. 
the possibility of actually getting together with people to create change can also be a very joyful experience. Yes. Yeah. Let's keep that as a possibility. I recognize that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ayo and Bo. Uh, just a couple comments, if I may. Um, just to acknowledge that that we are uh, mostly, not completely, but mostly white sangha, whatever white means. Uh, and so, I'm a, very much aware that that I have the the privilege of being white, and so I don't have to pay attention to this if, as much if I don't want to. But I know that black people, uh, just walking down the street. Uh, anything can happen. The pol- police, we know that police just murder black people, uh, unarmed black people, um, without being held accountable. And, and it happens, it's like every week. So I just, you know, just to, to acknowledge that for me, I don't have to pay attention to this <laughs> because I'm white, and, but, but yet uh, this is just this everyday reality 24-7 for black people. So I'm just, I just want to say that. And I'm aware of that. Uh, so uh, there's more. I, yes. As you say that, you know, what came up for me is that yes. is the, um, and I'm, I'm guessing this might be the case for all of us. Okay. But when we say things like, because I'm white, I don't have to do something as it relates to, you know, how other people being treated, we negate our humanness. Right. We, we, yes. We, so if I say I'm, cause I, and, and I'll just bring this up as an example. Someone told me because I'm black, I don't swim. Like, what are you talking about? You know? Um, so we have to be careful. Like, like you said, uh, white, whatever that means, black, whatever that means, Asian, whatever that means, native American, whatever that means. Um, that we are not negating our uh, humanity and we are not undermining our capacity to empathize with people who suffer. Amen. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Uh, Ed has his hand up. Go ahead, Ed. Oh, thanks, you very much. You know, I, the, our late poet laureate, Toni Morrison, was very clear on the indivisibility of, of white America and black America as a shared experience, unseparate. And I, in, in, in tying that to what you just talked about notions of identity and separation, division and humanity versus inhumanity. I don't, I have a hard time understanding the self alienation that occurs with anyone of any any racial appearance that separates themselves from others is is fundamentally an act of self-separation, is it not? Given uh, Tony's general framing of the issue as our poet. Okay. Well, I don't have the... Ed, thank you. Thank you very much for your question and thank you for bringing Tony Morrison into this conversation. I don't know the context of that particular um, uh, quote, but I'm also bringing in if if and, and if this uh, I hope this is uh, appropriate. I'm also bringing in some of the teachings of Alice Walker, 
Um, and so Alice Walker is, is credited as having coined the word womanism or womanist. And uh, basically, this is the perspective of African descended women. And from that perspective, she says to be a womanist may mean separating yourself from others temporarily, temporarily, uh, just to attend to your own needs, but to it, not to be a permanent uh, decision or permanent posture. Is, is that what Tony's talking about, Ed? Sure, that's, it, I mean, yes, very consistently, yes. I mean, that notion of how the experience of the self is so fundamentally tied to all persons with realm of awareness, that separation is actually unachievable. Mm. And so the notion that we can have these divisions is almost, it's unintelligible in many ways, right? right. I mean, these are all internal internalized ideas. So how does, how does it even manifest itself in what seemed very... Uh, impertinent and impermanent ways, such as the uh, the police, a lot of the police in their in the relationship to communities that they're not familiar with, and their patterns of behavior in that way. It's not. It, it does not reflect on, that, on on those officers' humanity as much as their their separation from themselves and their practice of their lives. Is that fair to say? Remains, I mean, you just inspired me. Your your wonderful talk inspired me along those lines. Thank you, thank you, Ed. I I don't know if I know how to respond to that question that you just posed, but what came up for me is that in the broader context that we are in. And by broader, I'm, t- I'm speaking specifically of the United States. And then just in, in our history, racial history. And I think about, uh, in particular, what's happened over the last five years. <clears throat> These rallies um, that Trump was having on a regular basis, <clears throat> perhaps we can see them now really as, as, as white mobs largely, right before our eyes. They didn't necessarily act uh, against groups of people violently, but each time it was a stirring up of violent tendencies. Early on, when Black Lives Matters activists were attending these rallies, the the um, the president would say, even or or what, before he became president, he would say things like, "Black Lives Matters activists are disgusting," and yeah, hit them. Who says stuff like that, right? But he did, and his followers did exactly that. So. I see that as a manifestation of, of hundreds of years of, of uh, white supremacy against black people 
And so if Black people want to separate themselves to take care of themselves, if we want to do that, um, I think we should do it. And people who are practicing compassion should not criticize that. One, should not criticize it. And two, should not put a timetable on it. Because we don't know, none of us knows the level of pain, how deep that pain is. Um, No one knows that. So we say, this is the culture we're in. This is the harm that has been um, directed towards the specific group. People in that group want to take care of themselves. And I will not get in the way of them doing that. Even if conceptually or in the cosmos or in our understanding of Buddhist anthropology, that we are not separate, I'm not going to impose those those teachings on this group of people. Let them heal, and then I'm going to attend to my healing, too. Thank you so much, Ayo. And thank you for your compassion and just uh, being here to talk with us. Uh, really appreciate it. There's a number of hands up. Uh, I'll call first donation. Nancy. Thank you, Tegan. And thank you, Ayo, for your talk. Thank you. Um, you know, sometimes the conversation moves on a little bit before you get a chance to speak when you've raised your hand. But um I wanted to go back to, and, and now I think I might have lost the spirit of it, but I wanted to go back to, Tegan was saying, you know, I'm white, and because I'm white, I don't have to confront this every day. Um, I am white, and I work in an extremely diverse environment. I work at the most diverse public four-year university in the Midwest, and I'm the director of the Counseling Center. So I am constantly needing to take in others' perspectives and honor others' perspectives. And, um, and I do that very happily. And also to kind of check my own perspective with people, because people constantly want a response from me. And I'm so aware all the time of how limited my perspective is and how much I want to be respectful of other perspectives. And 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 I'm 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 good with that. I think where I find myself struggling is with family or friends who are not real close friends who are police officers and who are um, kind of you know building up um, the police and and uh, you know some of them have been you know doing character assassination against all kinds of people, Democrats, the president, George Floyd. And, um, you know, knowing, knowing how to speak up in those situations and when, when I need to kind of just keep silent and when to speak up. So I don't know if I have a question, but um, just it's, I think, right, just appreciating that it is hard to be out there every day with whatever one's demographic perspectives are. 
we're, we're affirming, Nancy, we are affirming each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, and it's, and it's stressful. And, and so I, I understand when people feel the need to take a step back um, maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that's, um, you know, as a, as a white person in white spaces, maybe that is that, that kind of feeling of, um, you know, everybody thinks the same way as I do right now. And that's, that's helpful. And, and, and for black people or brown people as well to have that support so that you can go out into, um, you know, kind of this, just the, the charged nature of our, of our multiple perspectives. Do you want to say what school you you uh, work sure. at? I'm sure. curious. Northeastern Illinois University. Northeastern Illinois University is the most diverse university in the Midwest, did you say? Well, four-year public university. I don't know, you know, I, other universities that are private may be more diverse and two-year universities may be more diverse, but they... But they um, we kind of really have a feeling of pride about that. Um, I thought so. So do you. Sorry, go ahead. So do you. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, um, the reason why I ask is because I, I feel like I thrive in, in diverse cultures. Um, and so my hope is that as we, as we continue to think about what, how we want to respond if Avalokita Sfara, Kwan Yin, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, James Baldwin, you name them. How do we want to respond? What contexts do we want to find ourselves in? And if we look around and realize, oh, you know what? I am only surrounded by people who look like me, think like me, do like me. How am I ever going to really be prepared to receive the perspectives of others. Yes. You know, not to mention the fact that there are multiplicities of ways that anyone can respond regardless of their race or other position. Um, I, the context of my, my statements are that I, had to, I was asked to give a presentation earlier this week about basically self-care for people who are experiencing or witnessing injustice and how to speak up, you know, how to speak up without burning out. And, um, you know, and I, and I, and I qualified that this is only one perspective and that there are many other ways, but I'm also, you know, I'm so aware that my, um, my sort of suggestions for people partly coming from being a white person and partly from coming from being Buddhist were very much, you know, think about longitude, you know, the long-term change and, and how do we respond in a way that, that people will, are more likely to hear us. Um, but also acknowledging that that doesn't work for everyone at every time and every place, you know, that, that there's a time to respond in a very different way, but, um, but I'm not, but I'm, you know, and I acknowledge that, but I'm, that's not what I'm saying. So it's, it's having that tension of recognizing that people may see that the way that I, the ways that I'm recommending are maybe, you know, they don't know that I'm Buddhist. So they're just going to think that they're very, very white. Maybe, maybe, but Nancy, you're, you're saying something 
you're making me think about what Bo was talking about as well. So uh, attending to the, the pain and suffering of people who have witnessed others uh, committing harm. So uh, I've been thinking a lot about a lot of things lately. I'm sure all of you have been thinking about a lot of things a lot, a lot lately. And so we've heard the word trauma, right? So trauma is written about quite a bit in, in our book, Black and Buddhist. But we don't talk about the connection between, I don't think we do, talk about the connection between trauma and moral injury. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about the concept of traumatic moral injury. Think about the people who tried to save George Floyd. All those people around pleading with the police officers to stop. Man, you're killing them. Man, get up. Dude, get up. And then the police officer pulling out something. Could have been a gun, could have been mace, people said. He's pulling out mace or something like that. In any case, he was willing to keep his knee on George Floyd and also prevent the witnesses from intervening. So imagine, and maybe some of you have been through something like this. You believe, perhaps, that the police largely are here to help us keep order, go after the bad guys. Okay, and we know that, as as Tiger was saying, the bad guys oftentimes are Black people, unarmed. Okay, but largely the police are here to keep order. Um, so there you are, you're witnessing a police officer who is largely supposed to do good and is doing something heinous that is about to result in death or a significant injury at the very least. And there you are trying to stop, stop it, but you can't. What is your takeaway from that? It's very likely Witnessing that has been a traumatic event, right? But what does it say internally in our psyches that the trauma came from you trying to do good, trying to do something moral, but could not? Next time you have an opportunity to do something good, will you? Next time you feel the impulse to do something good, will you have a traumatic memory that shuts you down and makes you feel ill? So, Bo, back to your um, concern, which is a concern shared by many people, myself included. Who am I? You know, I'm just one person. This issue is huge. I've got a life. How can I possibly prioritize something and do something that could actually result in in something? So I've been thinking about this as well. And I began looking at um, the Good Samaritan laws. You know, we have Good Samaritan laws on the books, right? So we say this is a Christian culture, right? It's a racialized culture that's also wrapped up in Christian values. It's crazy the way human beings are. Yeah. However, 
what would it be like to look at the, the Good Samaritan laws in our states with the heart of compassion, listening to the cries of the world as Buddhist mindfulness practitioners and practitioners? And really look at those laws and see, do they really, because the Good Samaritan laws are about compassion, right? About protecting people who are trying to act compassionately when someone is in distress. What if we looked at that with critical eyes and, and, and saw that there are actually opportunities for strengthening those laws? Can we strengthen the protection? of people who are trying to do good. And let me let me take it this way. So there are a couple of things I didn't tell you about myself. I'm a law school graduate, never practiced law, but I'm a law school graduate. So I think about these things. What if the witnesses, any of those witnesses who tried to save George Floyd's life, who experienced a traumatic moral injury as the result, were able to sue the state Mm -hmm. because they were not able to to act under the Good Samaritan law. What might that tell any, any policing entity about the power of the people? There's wisdom in the power of people. We knew that if what happened to George Floyd continued, that that he would die. Because we are wise people. We know we can't live if we can't breathe. It's really that simple. So what if police officers know that when you are in the midst of killing somebody and we come and we tell you to stop, that you should stop. So I throw that out there. Thank you, Nancy, and thank you both for inspiring those those thoughts, those memories. Thank you, Ayo. Um, we have a couple hands up, um, and uh, you know I welcome any of you, all of you, to uh, to contribute your thoughts or questions. Uh, I'll call first on Eve Pinsker. You're up next, Eve. I've I've found myself wondering about the intersections between race, class, and capitalism and and feeling some tension between honoring the particularities of the black experience of an history of trauma in in America and some of the larger patterns that I think we're all cut up caught up in. Um there you know the the i mean police do kill white people too and um the disproportionately the killings of um black people by police have you know it's been disproportionate by race but there's actually been more white people killed because there are more white people but um but a lot of it does seem to have to do with class and one of my friends was driving in Winnetka um, and was driving an old car and got pulled over. And it was at night. I don't think the person could tell 
that much about what he looked like when he pulled him over. But, um, and, you know, he sat there for a long time and the officer finally came over and said that he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a, um, a light um, on his license plate. And then when he got home, he discovered there was nothing wrong with the light on his license plate. The policeman was just trying to figure out, I guess, some legitimate reason for having pulled him over. But what seemed to be the clue was basically that he was driving, you know, that he was an outsider in this wealthy suburb and he was driving an old car. Um, and, you know, he didn't get killed. I mean, it didn't go to that point. But but I think, you know, there are some of these underlying dynamics that 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 do have to do with with class as well as race and um and it's made me think about you know who's manipulating whom and why and one of the things that i i work um on a project that's looking at the disproportion that's trying to address the disproportionate morbidity and mortality COVID rate in black and brown communities in suburban Cook County. Um, And, you know, one thing that stands out is, you know, who can remote work and who can't. Um, And right now it's, you know, who's got a computer so you can look and you can look on the computer and you can get a vaccine appointment and who can't do that. Um, so it's just perpetuating some of these, these um, you know, divisions that already exist. Um, and I was reading about um, the algorithms on Facebook and the patterns that have exacerbated, you know, the political splits that were already there and the ways that the Facebook algorithms promote what they promote is engagement. You know, they want people to click and they want people to click multiple times. And, and they've learned that the way you get people to do that is that they, they, they um, you know, you, you, they show you content that you can't look away from. And they appeal and, and they build on, you know, tendencies that people already have to click on whatever they're clicking on, you know, whether it's racist or whether it's not racist. And, and, and the underlying motive is profit um, because, you know, they're selling attention, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there's all these, these underlying and, and, and then when somebody, you know, when you see the white mobs, um, I mean, you know, one thing to me that underlies that is, is getting people to claim their own white privilege at the expense of looking at, the privilege that they don't have um, and the divergences between, you know, the 1% and the rest of us. Um, So while, you know, I honor and respect people's need to heal themselves um, and, and to form separate communities uh, for that purpose, I, I guess I'm also wondering about the need to talk about, you know, the underlying um, some of the underlying dynamics, like I said, around capitalism, around promoting profit, that 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 affect all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Eve. Um, before I, f- I do want to say something, um, but before I do that, because I may forget again the way my mind 
brain works. I want to go back to Bo. Bo, <laughs> what I was trying to say that I forgot to say is that if if the idea of of Buddhists looking at the Good Samaritan laws is a good one, and we decide that we want to pursue that as Buddhists, then um, so that we do not exhaust ourselves, we say to Christians, we go into a interfaith dialogue with Christian bodies and say, yo, <laughs> this is part of your tradition. This is here because of the culture of Christianity. And we as Buddhist practitioners, you know, we look at we look at compassion, right? We may not be as good at activism, as good at it as Christians are, but here's an opportunity. This is something that we can do. We can enter into dialogue with you about uh, these laws and we will support uh, the flourishing of compassion within within this community, within this uh, nation. So anyway, Bo. Okay, Eve. Thank you. So, Eve, I have a question for you. Mm. Okay. My observation first is that you're bringing up a lot of complexities. Yeah. Um, that you know, uh, some would say. I don't know if this is your view, but some would say that you can't separate capitalism from racism and classism in the United States. It's all intertwined. Yeah, and I think you need to look at the ways they're intertwined. Yeah. However, when groups get together and separate themselves in order to work on the things that they decide to work on, it's up to them what they're going to work on. It's up Mm -hmm. to them what they're going to write. So then do we say, let's say, let's say a representative from a group comes and they say, we've been working on um, racial healing. Is it us? Is it up? Up to us to say, yeah, but did you? It's it's not valid if you didn't talk about capitalism and 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 class as well. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's not valid. I'm just saying that that you know I want there to be um, <laughs> enough people who are willing to talk about some of the complexities, and not that everybody has to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, think, dedicate themselves to the same part of the struggle, uh, but sure. yeah, yeah. So when so when the dialogue outside of the group begins, maybe other people will bring other issues in. But it's real. I think it's really important to pay attention to if you if you don't represent the um, embodied experience of that group, or if you represent someone. Uh, uh, from the group that is, let's say, the perpetrator of a lot of harm, then you have to, I think, in order to, for that uh, conversation to be fruitful, um, there needs to be uh, this, uh, humility, right, about who we represent. There needs to be relationship, and that takes time. There needs to be gentleness around making sure that what we think needs to be talked about is not going to be received as uh, invalidating the concerns mm-hmm. of the group. Yeah, um, well, I'm so not talking think- about invalidating anybody um, or or negating any any conversation that's already taken place or needs to take place or will take place. I'm I'm saying that you know I do want there to be. 
I mean, I wouldn't think it would be controversial to say that, that, you know, there needs to be this other conversation too. It could be, is what I'm saying, Eve. It could be. For for you to say what conversation people should have. I'm not saying what conversation people should have. I'm saying that, 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 um, you know, I, why should I tell anybody else what conversation they want to participate in? I'm, I'm just saying that, that I think, um, you know, I'm seeing a need for a conversation about some of these intersections. And I don't think it negates other kinds of conversations that, that need to take place and are taking place and that I also want to support. Okay. I, it could be that I misunderstood you. I was just kind of conveying what, how it was landing on me. And I apologize yeah. if I aggravated Thank you, Eve, for making your point. I, I think we got it, and, and I have got it, and so thank you. There, there are numbers of hands up uh, also. Uh, I'm going to call first on Co. Hi. Thank you so much for your talk, Reverend. Um, one of the things that was rising for me, um, particularly from your um, discussion with Bo, was uh, one of the resistances that I have in making this intimate contact um, with people of color. I was raised in a very racist community. And as when you wake up in your adolescence and you realize that there is injustice, the place that I had to go was the library shelf um, that had um, great black literature. So my first conversations with no support outside was in reading Black Boy and Native Son and The Bluest Eye. So what rose in me was this real sense of shame at what white supremacy has done. And that shame is very enervating. It, 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 it's hard to move through that because I project on many um, Black folks in my life a justifiable dislike of me because of my pigmentation. So I just want to, to name that particular resistance to the work, even though I don't think that's a legitimate reason to stop the work. It, I think it, it, it's very much to, it's very, um, I feel so called to move forward. I think that this is the, the time and the place to really do some serious work together um, to overcome this, the heinous legacy of this white supremacy. But I just wanted to talk about that particular subtle um, place of resistance. And thank you again for um, being open to be part of this dialogue. Thank you, Ka. Thank you. Let me make sure I understood the essence of what you shared. Um, part of it is about the shame of, of white supremacy. Having grown up uh, in a white and racist culture. And the other part mm-hmm. of it is concerns about how you're being perceived by non-white people. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay, can I, I would like to start there and ask you, how do you think I'm perceiving you now? Um, I feel you perceiving me with compassion, um, partly because of my 
assumptions about you in your role and your training. So I, yes, I, I perceive you as a compassionate being who's looking at me with compassionate eyes. Which is why I can confess this mm. distortion I have in myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So that isn't it? Our minds are really interesting, right? Aren't they? Yeah. yeah, because basically, what you think about me, you have no way of proving it. Mm-hmm. Those are all like projections, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So right. What if, so I'm, and, and you said that because of what you thought about me, you were able to confess this. Mm-hmm. Okay. What if you thought about every non-white, uh, every, <laughs> seriously, you know where I'm going. Every <laughs> non-white person you meet mm. could receive the gift of this, <laughs> of this perception until proven otherwise. Until mm-hmm. proven otherwise. Right? Yeah. Because no one knows the shame that we carry until we act it mm-hmm. out or speak it out. So I'm asking, asking you to trust. Yeah. Trust yeah. that, that most people will, most people I believe are not sociopaths. <laughs> I, believe, I believe most people have the capacity for empathy and compassion if not in the first instance, in the second or the third instance, mm-hmm. when we begin to reveal ourselves to one another, right? As I begin, mm-hmm. as I begin to get to know Co, what is important to Co? How does Co come into the space, right? Who is in Co's world, right? What mm-hmm. matters to Co? How does Co respond to such as then? We become real to each other mm-hmm. and we cross some of those barriers. We're not totalizing each other based on appearance. Yeah. yeah. And I think also you have, I hope you have, uh, the gift of Zen teachings around how to disidentify with certain a- aspects that could lead to shame. Yes. Right. Okay, good. I, I'm glad you have that. I'm I'm on the path. I'm I'm not arrived, but I'm on the path. <laughs> I'm, I'm on it with you, Co. We're on it together. <laughs> Thank you so much, Reverend. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, just Io. I'm not. I don't have. I was okay because I. Yeah. Okay. I don't care. I don't carry a Reverend. Okay. Io. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Io. So, Io, thank you so much for all your responses. Uh, there's more hands up, and uh, David Weiner. Uh, can I call on you next? Thank you again, Ayo. Um, uh, I want to speak to something a little bit that uh, Asian spoke about. Um, and for me, it's very schizophrenic uh, in a way. Um, I remember about three years ago, uh, three or four years ago, as a Sangha, we were going down to Daily Plaza to sit in silent meditation to protest the uh, immigration policies of the Trump uh, administration. And we were there, there was a big rally and there was going to be a march and people were marching, but we were going there just to sit. 
And I had gotten there first to kind of like stake out a territory. And I saw all the, all the policemen that were there. And my third first thought was a flashback to nineteen sixty nine when I saw Fred Hampton speak in that same square and I looked at the policeman and I said, Oh, the pigs are here. <laughs> you know, they're the pigs. And uh then Hogetsu and Kathy Bingham, who are members of our song, actually went up and started talking to some of the policemen. And they were like people. They just weren't pigs, <laughs> at least to Hogetsu's eyes and it, Kathy's eyes. And it kind of it kind of showed how my framework was working there and how I, in my own way, was being uh, discriminatory, was being not accepting, was seeing separation. Um, and I looked at that, and now I have a well-being list that I, I chant in the, after I chant to the Namijuku Kanan Gyo, um, I, I do a well-being list, and part of my well-being list is Donald Trump and all his followers who, in their delusion, harm others, that I have to have compassion for him as well, as hard as that may be. Some people call it radical love. Um, and it's really kind of schizophrenic in that sense of trying to do it. At the same time, I'm uh, a graduate student at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies as I study to become a chaplain. And I'm reading now, uh, this last year, one course after the other has been on uh, social justice in one one form of another, including reading James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And uh, reading now a book called uh, Ecclesiology and Exclusion, looking at exclusion. And there was one book I can't remember, but a professor from uh, Notre Dame University by the name of Grudy, who says that all life is a sacred gift. And we have to go out uh, to the margins and accept all people, that all people are, from a Catholic perspective, all people are human and created by God, and therefore that all people are sacred. Um, so there's this, this dynamic that goes back and forth between and futility that here I am because I'm in my 70s. I've you know, lived through the Vietnam War, and I lived through the civil rights movement and participated in all those protests and not seen enough change and feel... I'm powerless to change what I think is so horrible. And and that leads to the reaction of being angry at people and calling them pigs and wondering how that separates me from that and how I have to work as a person and as a Buddhist on being able to see there isn't separation. How can I find that Middle quote the middle way basically Buddhism the middle way, uh, and that's tough. 
it's really, really tough. Um, Thank you, David. That's already a lot to respond to. So, Io, um, I, uh, if you would comment, please. I would love to. First of all, David. Oh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to show you that my arms are open. I am welcoming <laughs> you into the pastoral ministries profession. <laughs> Blessings on your studies. Um, and as as someone, I consider myself to be an older student. Um, when I was getting my doctorate degree, uh, I love it. I love it when people say I'm 70, 80 years old and I'm pursuing my interest. I'm pursuing a degree. That's wonderful. I also went to, I got a um, master's at a Catholic university um, that also espoused radical love. It was a very liberal to progressive uh, Catholicism. And you also talked about schizophrenia, not not the diagnostic term schizophrenia, but I hear what you're saying about having opposing like entities within oneself, talk, battling it out. Um, and I think what you, you have in this practice, this middle way, um, this non-dualism is like an antidote to, um, to being polarized within ourselves. So uh, you've got it. You're recognizing the truth of your experience. You're naming it. You're claiming it. And you're also practicing with it. Uh, and I think that's, that's the key, to notice when you are polarized in your thinking which blinds us to the wholeness of, of people and our cosmos. You recognize it and you say, okay, I'm going to now employ my resources, my practices to bring me out of that polarization, to see the other truth and to bring those truths together. That's the middle way. Thank you so much, Ayo. Um, David Ray, you had your hand up. Thank you, Io, so much for your talk. I really appreciated it. Um, at the beginning, you were you were talking about your experience of you know of 2020 and it and its and its aftermath, and I really resonated so much because I heard you talk about not just anger but also rage and irritability. And I really, I really resonate with that. And, uh, I w- I would love to hear you speak more about. Rage. I mean, personally, you know, it, it, it's a personal path for me. I was I was raised by somebody who, who, who was a flash rager, and I've I've been that way in my life. But some of it's connected to you know um, collective trauma and oppression around gay queer identity. But I also feel it connected to things like you know moral indignation, like in this talk when you were talking about the white mobs. I felt a little flash of rage. I saw. I saw a Chinese sculpture is making um, is making uh, sculptures of of, um, of of Trump as as, as Buddha, <laughs> and I saw that and I felt the uh, so part of my part of my question is like and 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 I'm uh, I'm starting to get into uh, Lama Rod Owens's book, but I wonder like is, is rage rocket fuel or is it or is it more like an engine fire? You know, is it is it only part of the wound or or is it, is it part of the feeling? Is it just something to vomit out so I can, you know, have just be in the place of a more, you know, more controlled, um, a more controlled righteous indignation? Because my rage doesn't feel like righteous indignation. It feels out of control. 
Thank you. You know, there's a distortion. And so, uh, David, it's possible I didn't hear everything you said. I'll just say that I'm, oh. glad, I'm glad that you're reading okay. Rock's book, Love and Rage, by the way. Please, y'all, I'll read that book. <laughs> it's a really good book and very practical. Lots of exercises, lots of exercises for uh, for uh, living with um, anger and rage. I think for me, these Buddhist practices do not should not be used to negate whatever actually comes up for us as something bad, right? Like I'm not supposed to feel this way. So then we get into a spiritual bypass with our practices and try to pretend right in front, like, you know, uh, I cannot be perturbed, right? I'm, I'm that uh, uh, actualized. Um, no, I don't think it's for that. So, Anger comes up, rage comes up. But we do have practices that help us look at it, accept it, and work with it. So having rage doesn't mean that we don't practice right speech. If I say I'm feeling rage, that's just me claiming, right, my experience. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not shaming myself. I feel rage. Say it over and over again, we get louder and louder and louder. We want attention. We want somebody to take care of it. We, you know, and we start proliferating in a way that is uh, not helpful for anyone. Uh, we do that maybe to justify, right, this, this righteous indignation, right? The fact that something's happening doesn't mean that I get to act just like that thing. And get away with it, right? Because now I have to deal with the karma of of my bad actions. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, just, I feel personally just, I knew in my heart while I was watching the presidential debates in 2015, 2016, in the campaign. I remember telling somebody, um, you know, that I believed that Trump was going to win and that we should be prepared to die. Those were my words. I didn't know there would be a pandemic. But what I saw was uh, many promises for destroying this, destroying that, destroying them and enthusiasm for him and his message rising. And then as a black body person, seeing who he was being destructive towards and seeing who was getting on board with the history, be prepared to die. So do I feel rage about that? Yeah. And do I feel rage about the scores of people who didn't have to die, who didn't have to get sick? Yes. But I don't need to act on it. I just need to acknowledge it and think about how do I want to live the rest of my days in a way that is conducive to healing. 
and give yourself time. I say all of us who are sitting with anger and rage, just listen to the cries of the world. Service is the path. Service is the path. But let's be patient with ourselves, accept how we're feeling, and resolve when the time is right to make a world that is livable. I'm plugging in my light. David, is there something else you would like to say? As I no, just thank you. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. And thank you so much, Ayo, for all of your uh, wise words and kindness with us. And uh, so uh, uh, if anybody else has some comment or response or question, we have time for one more anyway. Um, please feel free. Yes, uh, Idan, coming from Israel. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I would like to ask uh, about the, the statue behind you, if that's okay. Huh? I've never huh? seen such. Call me in. I'll, I'll on, uh, sitting on like a half moon. All I know is that I saw <laughs> when I was looking for a gift for someone else. I found this on Amazon. Mm. And I said, and I didn't realize how big it is. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's, it's beautiful. I'm going to buy it for my friend and one for myself to, re- to add to my collection of Buddhas in different shapes and forms um, to remind myself of, um, of equanimity. So this, I don't know if this is the, you know, people say this, this is a, a, a manifestation of compassion. Um, but I see it, this, this one in particular, as equanimity, which um, always supports everything we do with wisdom. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, there's so much more to say about all of this. This is, you know, a discussion that we need to have the rest of our lives and work that we need to do to help in whatever way we can. Um, And, you know, just to acknowledge the karma of lynchings that, that go back 400 years. And so, and now we see it, you know, because of, cell phone videos we see it you know more closely but um it's not new um but but um i feel like there's possibility of change now just all the response for black lives matter and um you know there's so there's so much to say uh so i just just i'll I'll say thank you io for being here um I don't see any more hands up. So we'll close uh, David Ray with uh, chanting, uh, brief chanting, and then some announcements. And then uh, we'll have some time for people who want to hang out further on this, after that uh, informally uh, on our Zoom page and, and more, possibly more discussion. So David, uh, our closing chant, please.
Yes, and I'm sharing the, the screen. First, we'll chant the repentance first three times and, and then the chant. And I ask uh, everyone, uh, please do mute if you would for the chants and the repentance first. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding the fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, 
Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita.